0: Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, Sad, Confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Riz Ahmed delivers another stellar performance in Sound of Metal. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Uh, Another first-timer this week, guys, and one of the best actors out there. If you've been paying attention the last few years, you know what a chameleon... Riz Ahmed is, how he's basically capable of anything, whether it's character roles, whether it's leading man performances, he can do it all and he is back again with maybe his finest performance yet in the critically acclaimed and justifiably so new film Sound of Metal. Uh, This one's special, guys. This is one of my favorite films of the last year. I first saw it almost like a year and a half ago at the Toronto Film Festival. Um, You never know what you're going to get in these kind of like unknown movies that pop up there. And I was so blown away and pleasantly surprised. A bit of a character study kind of a film. This is about a like a heavy like metal drummer by the name of Ruben. He's been dealing with addiction issues and suddenly finds that he is dealing with traumatic hearing loss. And it it is his journey... Of acceptance and self discovery, and just changing his life, and also figuring out what's important in his life. Um, That all makes it sound much more medicinal than it is. It's actually super entertaining and just filled with fantastic performances led by Riz. Uh, A great opportunity for him, and he really made the most of it. Um, Thrilled that he's on the podcast today. Riz is a very thoughtful, smart, funny guy. You've seen him in films like Nightcrawler and Venom, the night of that great miniseries on HBO. Um, And before that was was killing it kind of in maybe not obscurity, but less uh, hailed movies, kind of more indie films. And I'm so thrilled that he's now kind of operating in in the with the big boys and, and and in the smaller films too. I didn't even mention Rogue One. What am I thinking? Of course, he was amazing in Rogue One. It Doesn't get any bigger than a Star Wars film. So, very happy for Riz that um, he's getting all the the accolades he is so deserved uh, deserving of. Um, I should mention we tape this the day after the madness at the Capitol. This insanity. This horrible situation. Um, you know, you've heard me talk politics here enough, probably, but um, yet another low point and and just, uh, I don't know, like many of you guys, I was just filled with despair and sadness watching um, what these thugs, what these riders were doing to our democracy. Um, so this conversation doesn't really get into that stuff, uh, per se, but it is, I just want to kind of give it some context because by the time you hear this, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Is Donald Trump still president? Let me know. Um, but yeah, that's where we were at when we, ch- we chatted the other day. Um, Other things to mention, uh, some cool uh, projects are out there. I should say, by the way, uh, that Sound of Metal is on Amazon Prime. So if you subscribe to Amazon Prime, you can check it out there. Um, Speaking of Amazon Prime, uh, One Night in Miami, uh, I believe, is dropping on Amazon Prime pretty soon. You guys should check that out. That's Regina King's directing debut. She, I mean... (laughs) <laughs> it's almost cruel that she is as as fine a director as she is an actor, but she really delivers in this true life story. Um, that is well worth checking out. Um, I recently streamed the third season of Cobra Kai. That was a welcome kind of distraction, a much lighter uh, kind of binge, and I uh, really enjoyed it. That's now on Netflix. Uh, a hearty recommendation on that. And I'm psyched, like all of you guys, to watch WandaVision, which will be out very, very soon. Some WandaVision-related content, as it were, coming into my world soon. So stay tuned for that. I'll keep you posted. Uh, Over on the stir-crazy side, uh, a fun new episode up with Jane Levy. I think I teased it on last week's episode, but she... Uh, is fantastic. She's of course the star of Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. If you haven't checked that out on NBC, please do. She uh, is delightful and was an excellent guest. Always love catching up with Jane. And that is a fun episode of Stir Crazy. Well worth checking out. Um, Those are the main events in Josh Horowitz land. I hope you guys are staying well. I hope you guys are staying safe. I hope you guys are staying entertained. There is a lot of good stuff out there. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy this chat with Riz. He, we didn't even get, by the way, into his music, musical career, which is crazy. Because if you know anything about Riz Ahmed, not only is he an amazing actor, but he's got this whole other life as Riz MC. So that's not really dealt, in, dealt with in this conversation, but another time. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. I'm also scattered today, guys. One other thing that, that is a fun little thing on this episode. Uh, we have a fun little comfort movie chat. Riz chose a great one. Uh, Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. So if you're interested in hearing about Goodfellas and, and how that informed Riz's uh, life and career, uh, he really is very eloquent about that too. So check it out and check out Glenn Kenny's new book about the making of Goodfellas. I talk about it in our conversation, but I'll I'll plug it here too because I recently read it and it's fantastic. Uh, Glen Kenny, great journalist, great reviewer, uh, wrote kind of like the definitive making of the behind the scenes kind of look at how Goodfellas was made and its impact and its uh, influence and. Um, if you love Goodfellas, you're going to love this book, so check that out too. Okay, on to the main event. Please remember to review, rate, and subscribe to Happy, Say Confused, spread the good word, and enjoy my chat with Mr. Riz Ahmed. Hello. Hey, man. It's Josh. Good to see you. You too, man. You're sideways. Am yeah, I sideways? Is- I mean, I can handle it. I can talk to you upside down, whatever yeah. you want.
1: Wow. You're so flexible.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's the only thing I'm flexible about. Um, <laughs> it's good to see a familiar face man Um, how you doing how you hold it up
1: not too bad how about you where are you in
0: LA right now I'm actually New York I'm New York based born and bred
1: yeah here, it's super weird over there right now and it's like just a crazy ghost town in New York no tourists
0: and yeah it's on little... the
1: streets does it kind of feel like people are getting on with their lives or is it like kind of ghost town
0: no I wouldn't say it's a ghost town certainly we bore the brunt of it at the start in like March and April that was the super scary time where it just felt like the apocalypse and then yeah i mean look numbers are up here like they are everywhere but um it feels like we've settled into some kind of quote-unquote normalcy are you in london you guys are in lockdown too right no
1: i'm not in london man i'm in i'm in northern california right now i'm headed to la actually soon and feeling a little bit nervous about it you know
0: gotcha yeah it
1: seems like it's a wild time Speaking of the apocalypse and then you know what happened yesterday as well oh my god yeah so
0: so as we tape this for those that are listening i don't know what the world is going to look like when you guys are listening to this i don't know who's the president i don't know what's happening but we're we're taping this obviously uh the day after this insanity at the capitol here in the states and man i I was going to say to you like are you good at compartmentalize and like say you were working right now would that be tough for you to kind of like focus up on the work if like some some kind of event like this is happening in the outside world like how have you been in the past on that kind of stuff
1: i kind of feel like in the past i've tried to separate my life or real life from the life of the story and on set and increasingly what i'm finding is a that's impossible it's a losing battle and b why would you do that if the universe is throwing you gifts of you know emotional stimuli take it run with it use it in some way you know a scene that's meant to be about you being uh you know annoyed at your dad you could easily swap that out in your mind for being annoyed at your president you know if you if you need it if it's there take it yeah um so i guess i'm kind of like uh, more open to you know what's available when you allow these lines to be blurred whereas before i remember i mean I wouldn't even allow myself to draw on anything in my own personal life for a character or for a scene. I weirdly somehow felt like that was cheating or as though maybe I would exhaust a well if I kind of you know draw from the limits of my own experience. Um, and maybe also on some level, I just thought my own experience isn't that relatable, you know, implicitly I've been taught by the world is a, a niche experience, right. okay. an archetypal one. So I would always just do research and draw from the character and the character situation. But Now I'm much more willing to bring some of myself and real life to, to things. And I, I think that, you know, I, I'm enjoying that more.
0: When, when did that shift happen? Was that on a particular role or, or working with someone in particular or how'd you get there?
1: I guess I just felt like I'd I'd hit a bit of a wall um, working the way that I used to work. You know, it's interesting because I think there's a different approach in Britain with its kind of history of theatre than there is in America with its kind of, you know, more of an emphasis on film acting and and Meisner and, um, you know, Strasbourg and, and all of this kind of stuff, whereas in the UK, and you you know, you hear about... Um, British actors like Anthony Hopkins and their preparation method is about reading the text out loud 250 times. Yeah. You know, I mean, it works, you know, so however you're going to get there, it's, it's an amazing way of working. But there's that British approach of kind of, it's all about the text. You know, how do you rehearse and fit? You sit down, and you analyze and break down the text. And all my training was just Shakespeare. I just did one year of classical acting in Central School of Speech and Drama with Rob Clare. And that was just all, yes, it's all text, it's all Shakespeare. Right. And, and I guess the idea is that, you know, you don't put yourself in emotional states. You know, feelings are kind of a happy side effect if they happen, that's not the point. Mm. And, and, and you know, Mamet writes about that as well when he's writing about the role of an actor, particularly in, on stage. And so I was, was always coming from this point of view, but I felt like the one thing I wasn't bringing to the table was any of myself. And, and I guess the reason why that was a comfortable way of working is, I'm used to leaving a part of myself at the door in any room that I enter. It's just how I grew up. I grew up between, you know, working class Pakistani household, got educated in, you know, posh white, uh, you know, upper class circles. So I'm always, you know, always editing yourself and leaving part of yourself at the door. Right. So working in that way, you know, leave yourself at the door, leave your feelings at the door, leave you at the door, just become this other thing. That, that so, it's an act of
0: self-preservation. It's an act of just sort of like this is protecting yourself when like the more vulnerable place to be is where you're at now. It sounds like where you're
1: I think dangerous so. I to think... a
0: degree, but it's it's hopefully reaping rewards and making you a little bit more open to the experience and, and connecting more with the material. That's the goal. I think so. I, think, I hope so, yeah. So this film, which, I mean, it boggles my mind. I keep having these conversations with people that, like, I first saw the films at at film festivals and (laughs) different kind of environments we were in, right? Like I talked to you like 15 months ago in Toronto about this movie and here we are, like, who could have predicted where we would be in these little boxes talking about this movie. Um, I knew we'd be talking about this movie again because like when I, when I saw this one, I I mean, you know how it is like film festivals, you never know what you're going to get. You get like a film title and a little log on. You're like, Oh, I'm hoping for the best. And, Frankly, I got this one like on the screener, I remember back then, and I was like so pleasant. I was like, this is awesome. Like, who, why is this not getting more buzz already? And I'm so thrilled we've gotten there where like this is getting you and, and Darius all the, all the accolades you deserve. Um, the movie is Sound, Sound of Metal. Uh, and I, you guys shot this one relatively quickly. I mean, this is what, like four weeks of your life? And, and yet you put months and months of research into this. So I, I, I'm fascinated by that kind of like dynamic where you're like spending all this time, months learning the drums and and sign language, et cetera. And then it's down and then you're like, wait, 27 days, 28 days, whatever it is, this is where we're at. Talk to me about like once you get to set after you've put in all that work, are you just so over-prepared that it's like ready for the gig? Or does it feel like, oh shit, like this is what it's all about. And I'm like feeling the pressure.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. We did shoot it in about four or five weeks Um, but we spent seven, eight months preparing for it intensively. So for me, the preparation was daily, you know, learning how to drum from scratch and learning American Sign Language. And it's it's interesting because I kind of feel like the way we were shooting really lent itself to uh, an improvisational attitude. You know, even if we, we didn't really improvise, it was a beautifully written script, but there was a feeling on set that anything was possible. We were kind of living through the experience. We were shooting chronologically. So that made a big difference. You felt like you were, you know, it was very lived in. It felt very authentic. All the goodbye scenes in the movie, for example, were goodbyes. The actor was then getting in a car and leaving set at the end of that scene and couldn't come back. Um, So there's this kind of meta layer of authenticity that Darius is always trying to preserve. It's so helpful as an actor, but... The preparation, as you said, you know took place over 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 many, many months. So I guess you know what that process like that kind of allows you to do and dares you to do is to be so prepared that you can have the confidence to throw it all away and let right. go, which is ideally what you're trying to do in any kind of process of preparing for a role. But with something like this, where it's like you're going to prepare for seven months and then we're going to shoot this so quickly and with so many kind of unknown elements that you have no hope of trying to control the process it it kind of whether you like or not backs you into that corner which is kind of where you should be which is i have no control yeah i can't even hold to the illusion of control in this process because of how quick it is and because of you know just so many factors that, that were at play but on some level, it's, it's in your body at that point, you know, right. the, the, the drumming and the signing. And, um, and it just opens, you, opens up your body. You know, both those skills kind of, I think, just put me in my body in a different way and allowed me to be receptive to everything Darius was throwing. away
0: Were you, so, so Darius, this is his first you know, narrative feature. And I mean, this in the nicest possible way. Were you surprised at how well this turned out? I mean, you never know. You, you know as well as I do. You can, you can feel good on set. You can feel like you're connecting. But like until you're sitting in that screening room watching it, you don't know. Do you? You know,
1: in a weird way, I just knew that Darius was going to do something special. And if you've met Darius, and I hope the whole world gets to know and meet Darius, because he's such an inspirational guy who's just obsessed with the creative process and leads with such a generosity and sense of play and fun. Um, I kind of want him to be the world's art teacher. You know what I mean? Uh, he's, uh, you knew he was going to do something special because as soon as I met him, he just had such a clear vision. It was such a bold and ambitious and slightly crazy vision, but he all, he was kind of presenting it with such a collaborative spirit. Right. And I think again, it's having being so prepared that you have the confidence to let go of control and let the scene tell you what it, what what, who you are. Yep. Not you telling the scene what it is, and so and so he had that rare combination of uh, this is I've been preparing, you know, the sound design of this for two years, and we haven't even started shooting. I'm gonna, you know, all this kind of stuff, um, which gave him the confidence to to let people into his process, and so that, I think that's the rare combo.
0: I find it so fascinating, like where we find like Ruben at the start of this film. So like without revealing the entire story, like this is a a drummer who who experiences this kind of traumatic hearing loss, but even before we ever meet him, he's gone on a, on a journey. Like he's he's come he's he's an addict and he's a recovering addict. And it's like I feel like I could almost watch like the story of Ruben confronting his addiction as the prequel to this film. And that's kind of it's April, kind of a, <laughs> the unlikely franchise that's We're gonna franchise
1: this uh, silent <laughs> art movie.
0: No, um, but you, but but I'm curious, like it is kind of like a story of addiction without like you know, any heroin needles in it. It's still about that yeah. in a way. And, and that's a, another fascinating aspect that I feel like is not overly wrought. And we see like these, you know, drug addiction films where it's like really yeah. harrowing. And this is just more, again, it just feels more real and, and lived in because we're seeing a guy that's already kind of lived through this past.
1: Um, yeah, no, it, it, was, it was definitely a kind of big uh, entry point for me into the character in terms of, you know, thinking about addiction in its broadest terms which is about seeking a quick fix, seeking control. You know, it's the inability for us, for many of us, to be able to sit with ourselves, to face the void, to face ourselves. And so because of that, what we do is we turn to distractions that can, you know, alter how we feel chemically. There might be shopping addiction, a gambling addiction, workaholism, codependency. And when you look at addiction in that broader, you know, through that broader lens of it being... The desire for control and an inability to sit with yourself, it really unlocks the whole character. And, you know, in many ways, most of us have addictions. You know, our society kind of nurtures them, um, makes it, you know, very difficult for us to even have to sit with ourselves. Um, And so, so yeah, I kind of feel like that... You know, it's not like this character likes drugs. It's like this character seeks a quick fix, seeks control. And so what happens when you take control away from him and give him a problem that he can't fix?
0: Well, and you've talked about it and I think very, uh, you know, accurately. I I, I hear what you're talking about with it. It's a very relatable film to this moment because it is about who you are when you're stripped away of your, of what defines you or what you think defines you. And certainly that's something that like, frankly, I face too. Like, you know I mean? Like work defines me to a degree and work changed this past year and all your normal habits change. Um, Do you feel like your work defines you? Does it feel like you've had to look in the mirror and be like, who is Riz without, without work? For sure.
1: For sure. And I mean, and that's what I mean by saying that I could I relate to Ruben's, uh, you know, workaholism and his addiction and, you know, how his workaholism gives him structure, control, and an identity. Right. And when you have that taken away from you, who are you? You know, are you nothing? Are you nobody? Are you worthless? Or ideally, if you can push past that, do you realize that maybe there's a core of humanity that isn't defined by these more circumstantial things, it's something that we all share? Um, and I, and I hope Light like, would like to think that Ruben begins to maybe glimpse that other way of, of looking at his identity and who he is. But yeah, for me, I mean, it, it was difficult. I think it was difficult for, for many of us in terms of just, ironically, if we're lucky enough to be stuck at home rather than having to go out and be frontline workers, you're confronted with this kind of abyss you know, because we're, we're all kind of taught to measure our worth in productivity, which is bizarre, some kind of Matrix X dystopia, you know, uh, it's like, and, and so it's like, yeah, it was very confronting for me, to be honest. It really was. And, and, and I think that many people will be able to relate to this film on a deeper level than they might have, because Ruben's Journey is a microcosm of what we're all going through as a yeah. society in this pandemic of facing the void and asking ourselves what, what does really matter.
0: Another uh, thing that um, defines me for good or for bad are, are the, are the things I love in, in pop culture, the film and TV. And I, I asked you to select a, a favorite comfort movie. I've asked a lot of my guests to do this in the past year. Um, and surprisingly you're the first to not the first Scorsese pick, but the first to pick this one, which I think is a comfort movie for, for many people. Can you tell me in the audience what you selected and, and tell me why?
1: yes yeah, so the film that i um chose is goodfellas i was just obsessed with this film for, for such a long time and i haven't re-watched it in a minute and i feel like after talking about it today i'm gonna have to oh totally um, <laughs> so weirdly the way i came to this film was through a drum and bass track so in the uk we have all these you know kind of dance music genres that grow out of jamaican sound system culture. And one of the drum and bass, which is a very fast kind of 180 beats per minute um, kind of music. And this track by UK Apache, who's is a like British Muslim guy rapping in Jamaican patois and London cockney uh, with his break beats. It's like a very, you know, London melting pot music. And it's this track called Original Nutter. And at the start, you've got that Ray Liotta sample. You know, one day, these kids from the neighborhood, they carry my mom's groceries all the way home from the store. You know why? It was out of respect. Back, 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 back. And then this this kind of Cypress Hill sample starts, and then the breakbeat starts. Um, and I was like, "Where's that from?" And I think it was my brother my cousin was like, "Oh, it's this gangster film. You should watch it." And you know, it, what's interesting is, you know, you can watch a film on many different levels. You can watch Scarface as kind of like, I want to be Scarface as a teenager. You can watch it later and say, wow, what an amazing camp kind of B-movie, yep. you know, uh, and still a piece of genius. Um, and Goodfellas is, I think, something that when I first saw it, I saw it and I was so excited by it, you know, by the glamour and the bravado of these, of these men. And now you watch it, it's kind of like horrible tragedy, this kind of car crash of masculinity, um, and you know, need to belong. Um, so it's a film that kind of keeps giving, you can keep returning to different points in your life, and you find new things in it. Um, but in a weird way, I felt like it was portraying a world that I could relate to and, and understand in just telling the story of kind of immigrants, you know. These these immigrant communities that are trying to belong and carve out some survival for themselves, uh, carve out a way to survive for themselves. And yeah, just have such a close-knit community with these kind of, this juxtaposition of conservative values and kind of like scrappy practices. They have a code.
0: They have their own code in a way. And that's admirable to a degree until you realize (laughs) the dark side, to say the least.
1: Exactly. And that's something that I can relate to, you know, in
0: my community.
1: And in my immigrant community, and, and, and the kind of, the weird way that people square the circle in their head, and um, where kind of moral codes can get you, this, the same things that are designed to kind of preserve you against the outside world can kind of set you against each other. You know, and concepts like honour being really real and tangible, particularly when, you know, you, you kind of, you don't you didn't come over to this country with your life savings, only thing you you're rich in is kind of this cultural capital of honor. You know, that's meaningful. That's something that people die for. You know, and so I can relate to all these things. And I was so excited to see this kind of, you know, it's it's a white minority culture, I guess you could say, but kind of immigrant minority culture playing place center stage like this was so exciting. It's something I've always kind of aspired to try and explore with some of the stories you know that I've grown up around.
0: Were you so, getting yeah. into trouble as a kid? Were you? Did you? Did you almost go down the the dark path of Henry Hill? <laughs> uh,
1: not not quite Henry Hill, but I think to some extent there was just there was just a certain level of trouble that you were going to run into and that you couldn't really escape. Just you know, I think as a young guy of of any age and of of any community or background, you know, that, that's true. But then it gets amplified a little bit if you're certain neighborhoods or communities, and you know. And so, yeah, I had some run-ins, I had some brushes, and kind of at that time, particularly in the in the '90s, I think the British Asian scene was really vibrant, kind of hotbed of 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 energy and possibility. You know, culturally, a lot of interesting music was coming out. This is the track I just described. Um, interesting films being made. We kind of had our first celebrities, you know, um, British South Asian celebrities, and it was also. Yeah, kind of this explosion of subculture and fashion. It was kind of this Rumblefish-esque world where we had our own parties and our own scene and our own beef and our own gangs and rivalry. And and it it was a thing. It was hard not to get swept up in it in some way.
0: Yeah. A, a little context for, for if you've been living under a rock for 30 years and you don't know good fellows it is the story of, of henry hill and his his life in the mob and it's um of course directed by the great martin scorsese written by nick paleggi uh based on a nonfiction a book by nick paleggi um it's by the way here's a, a recommendation for you Riz if you're not, not aware literally the, coincidentally i had just read this book there's a great book about like the definitive making of uh, goodfellas book that just came out in the oh, last couple really? months it's fantastic I, the last it's the last book i just read it's called made men it's by a great writer that i know named glenn kenny Talk to all the principals. so if you really want to dive deep wow.
1: it's awesome amazing man. I'm writing that down <laughs> right now dude <laughs>
0: Yeah, it was made for this conversation. It's fantastic. Um, so you've, as far as I know, you've never, you haven't been well, directed. Can you say one more thing? About yeah, please then. go for it. Yeah, yeah.
1: I think it just has one of the greatest scenes ever. Well, let's it, get into which it. Yeah. Joe, which one? With Joe yes. Pesci. Joe Pesci asking Ray Liotta um, how he's funny. <laughs> to me, that is a more powerful kind of dead-eyed stare scene than you talking to me you know, in Taxi Driver, I think it's,
0: I think it's one of the best, most exciting scenes ever. Well, it encapsulates Um, everything I think that's great about the film, because the film is very, it's actually a very funny movie, a very entertaining movie, and yet it can then turn on a dime. It's that line between comedy and almost horror, and that's all in that scene where we see both sides of Pesci's character and it's, it's chilling. He's, he's one of the most intimidating, I've told this story before, I was at the press conference for the Irishman and he was up on that stage with Pacino and De Niro and Scorsese. The guy that scared the shit out of me the most was Joe Pesci.
1: <laughs> no, not even a contest. You wouldn't want to mess with Joe Pesci, man. <laughs> I was not after watching that scene. And yeah, and that juxtaposition, that tonal kind of like shift between the comedy and the horror really, uh, and the violence. Is is present throughout the film, and as it is in a lot of Scorsese's work, in the soundtrack. You know, when you have that juxtaposition of kind of um, rock and and you know, just really kind of uplifting vibesy nineteen sixties party music yep. with horrific violence. So yeah, I think I think it just you know, it, it kind of occupies so many different kind of gears and it, so many different colors of the rainbow in this film. Um, yeah, it's just a, it's a magical, crazy movie, and it's one of my favorites.
0: Have you had the pleasure of uh, sharing company, auditioning for for Mr. Scorsese? Has it? Have you come close?
1: I haven't. No, never have. I've never. That's never been on the cards for me. But I did once meet Ray Liotta in Venice,
0: and I just
1: <laughs> and he was just kind of sat in the corner of this, you know, bar or whatever at uh, the film festival, looking every bit like kind of like Paulie in a way, you know, uh, you know just sat there surrounded by people in his black suit and I just went up to him like a supplicant going to kiss his ring and just went like, yo, just want me to know like Goodfellas is really the reason why I wanted to do this and he just kind of gently tilted his you know, head <laughs> at me with the slightest nod and kind of with a, with a flick of his eyes, let me know that I should leave now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you read The Room and got out of Dodge. Um, <laughs> a Good double feature I would recommend. Do you know Copland? Have you seen Copland with uh, Leota and, and um, De Niro in it? Oh, man. Here's my You're second nice. recommendation for, for you. Really? Okay. Directed by James Mangold. Uh, it's got of all people Sly Stallone and actually like great acting performance um, and it's it's a uh, it's good it's a great crime flick um, so some other things to, to, to mention here uh, yes De Niro of course is uh, plays Jimmy Conway Leota uh, a career making role as Henry Hill Pesci won the Oscar you know what his Oscar speech was it was like five words what did he say he said it's my privilege thank you got off the stage
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> amazing
0: Tell me when you win your Oscar and it's gonna happen. You're gonna say more than five words. Have you daydreamed about it? What the, is speech the is shortest, going to
1: be. Is that the shortest? It's
0: actually Oscar not. I think there is like ever. a thank you or two. Like there's but Thank you. Wow. That's crazy. It's, it's also privileged. Thank you. What a, what a G. Wow. It's it's also up there as one of the, the most prolific uses of the word fuck in a movie. Uh yeah. 321 uses of that delicious word. Uh that's the by Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's why Wolf of Wall Street feels like such a return to form in a way because it's like going back to that world, isn't it? Yeah. Of, you know, boys misbehaving. Um, <laughs> and it's just, yeah. I mean, for people who haven't seen Goodfellas, I mean, what else can we tell them? I mean, there's, this, there's that iconic kind of like steady cam shot.
0: It's the Copacabana um, entrance, right? Yep.
1: Yeah, exactly. Walking through the kitchen and where well, you just kind of understand who this character is. Um, and you kind of shift perspectives in a way that's actually really bold. I mean, there are multiple different voiceovers right. in, in the film. So you are hearing Ray character I mean, he'll tell the story, but also his wife. And you kind of make that shift quite early but but it's they're not you know her perspective isn't obviously set up from the start so these kind of new voiceovers and perspectives start entering the film and you hear Scorsese talk about how he wanted to push that even further with Casino when you start adding multiple voiceovers and you just start inhabiting the you know seeing the film from all these different perspectives whereas before it was kind of you know more kind of single uh, point of view so there's there's all kinds of like bold and uh, kind of wacky stuff happening uh, in terms of how stories being told. Yeah. But we just kind of carried through on this really fun ride. Yeah.
0: Because um, that, that scene you refer to where essentially that's like Lorraine Bracco's characters, uh, Karen's characters, like entry. She's like her view into that world and it is glamorous right. and exciting and it can be at first. It just takes you a little while to realize, again, the underbelly of how dark and, and, and scary and, and dangerous this world can be. Um, but you're right. The shifting perspectives is fa- fascinating. Another scene that comes to mind is, is spoiler alert when when um, when Tommy uh, dies. Joe Pesci's character thinks he's going to be a made man,
1: mm. and
0: uh, we cut back and forth from him entering, and then you see uh, De Niro on the on the phone and in the, in the phone booth losing it. Um, it, it. You know, as as despicable as these characters are, by that point you're like you're, you're feeling all. You, you, you yeah. really, it's kind of a, it's, it's an amazing magic trick that, that Scorsese does. Uh,
1: again, again and again, actually, it's the way that you kind of undercut um, violence with comedy. Right. And right. then you kind of go from comedy back to the violence. So it's even more shocking, you know, that scene where they go to visit Joe Pesci's mom after right. just, you know, having committed a brutal murder Yeah, and they go there and they just, you know, you know, you have some more spaghetti and when are you going to get married? When are you going to find a good girl? It's just like, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And, and, and in a way, I mean, it could, I couldn't relate to that, but that sense of double life, that sense of like family values yes. alongside get them before they get us. <laughs> that was something that was kind of quite real in, you know, uh, in some of the environments that I grew up around. And, you know, your parents never really knew the life you were living. They didn't even know you were out a party. It was very kind of traditional, conservative at home out there in the world it's like, it's just like all bets are off it's wild right. all kinds of stuff's happening
0: who were who were your biggest influences uh, in terms of like your love of film growing up did you have siblings or friends that kind of introduced you to the world of film do you remember big influences in that way or did you find your own path
1: i never had like a kind of you know someone give me uh you know kind of orson welles box set and go hey you know you're gonna learn about cinema it was it was you know, I was just the kind of movie lover in a kind of very everyday sense. You know, I just loved Terminator 2 and Robocop and, you know, the first Batman movie and was just, you know, j- j- just got, got into it, you know, quite mainstream movies in that way. But I guess something that, that shifted things for me a little bit was discovering La en, the, the French film. Yeah. Uh, and then kind of doing my French, you know, high school project on it. And just starting to watch, like, French movies a little bit and just realizing, oh, wow, there's all these movies out there and then watching Battle of Algiers. And, yes, and you know, that was something just as a teenager that opened up a world for me. And I discovered it completely by mistake, staying up late one night, parents on homes, watching TV, what's on Channel 4, this black and white movie. Oh, it must be, if it's black and white, it must be old. Oh, no, it's black and white, but it's set now. But those (laughs) characters are like the characters you know, in London on a state, but they're speaking in French. Okay, what's going on here? And then watch that film. And I was like, boom, that's what I'm going to do my A-level French project on, Maybe. is that film. Um, and so that kind of that shifted things for me a little bit. But in terms of like the, the people that exposed me to all those films growing up, it, you know, obviously this is in the day of VHS rentals. So you'd go down to the local post office to rent video cassettes. And that was the main kind of activity that we had growing up. You know, we go to our cousin's house, sleepover. We go into the post office to rent a film. We, you know, that was, we, it was always about just renting uh, VHS tapes. And actually, just a huge thing for me was just the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Because <laughs> it was so what we shouldn't have been watching aged like seven and eight, eight, you know, years old. Just horrific No, it's,
0: it's, it's always that, isn't it? It's always the films that you're like five or 10 years too young ostensibly to see that really makes the impact for me. It was like the sleepover when I saw Jaws and I was like just not old enough and or Exorcist. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. this has scarred me, but in a good way. Yeah. I mean, imprinted I, on me.
1: I just remember this bizarre family gathering when like my great uncle and all my uncles and my dad were sat around in a room watching Nightmare on Elm Street 3 <laughs> in the middle of the day. And me and my cousin were watching it through a crack in the doorway. And I was like, what is this? Yeah.
0: Did you ever, think, so jumping jumping ahead a bit, you know, in recent years, I, I've talked to you uh, uh, related to like kind of these ginormous movies. They don't get much bigger than Rogue One and, and Venom. I'm curious, like you, you've lived a life. You've done a lot of theater, a lot of different kinds of films. Did you ever imagine being in those kinds of movies? Was that an aspiration, a dream, a bonus? I mean, what, tell me about sort of where you've landed in terms of like, being in that kind of stuff
1: yeah i mean I, I didn't really i had pretty low expectations all around you know going into this business you have kind of high hopes and low expectations generally and for me i yeah i just didn't think that i would be asked to be in those kind of films i'd spent you know i had 10 years of a career at that point doing indie films and enjoying doing indie films, you know, really low budget films like Four Lions and Shifty and Hill Manor's and Road to Guantanamo, things that you know, went to festivals and people saw. Yeah. Um, and you didn't make a bunch of money, um, but you were, you were learning. And, and actually, I was, I was kind of I was pretty happy with that, you know, the, the, uh, t- taking on roles in, in that environment.
0: Yeah. Well you're working with great Michael Winterbottom, these are juicy roles. There's nothing to be apologetic, those that's a great life. That's a career that many would aspire to.
1: Yeah, it's it's really creatively fulfilling, but financially it was you know, it kind of really put me pushed me to the precipice a couple of times. I really? remember at the time which I did Night call. I was like, I don't know if I can continue doing this. Wow. You know, you just you don't make any money often on those on those movies and you gotta kind of you gotta ask yourself how long that's sustainable and whether things are gonna turn a corner and 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 actually the point at which I got the phone call about Star Wars was just as I was filming the night of and I was like, wow, I'm doing something like big. Uh and the night of was was the biggest thing I'd ever done at that point. It was the longest shoot and there were multiple cameras and it was filming in a studio and you know, it wasn't a four-week shoot or three week shoot. I was often used to doing three week shoots at that point. So And even after having done the night or, you know, even after we would started shooting the night of, I didn't think that, yeah, that was on the cards. And so for that reason, it wasn't even an aspiration of mine. I just didn't really, it wasn't really on my horizons weren't that, that broad. We didn't see that far in in a way, which is kind of nice because, you know, you just head down focusing on what you're doing, but it's also maybe kind of, telling you know in terms of some of the limitations you internalize totally you don't see any of see people like yourself in those positions you kind of think well okay that's not my part i'm going to be doing something else
0: so now have you gotten greedy now you know what's available now you know that you are no, you can play wrong, with the big boys I,
1: that's <laughs> it yeah um but you know it's, it's interesting because doing those kinds of projects is such is so different it's so it was so different to what i used what i was used to it was like a whole new world to me. Yeah. Um just the creative process, the way the decisions are made more by committee, the way that you know, it's it's a big machine. And you, it's a skill, a technical skill really trying to carve out a space for impulse and spontaneity totally. in that environment. And it's a valuable skill. It, just the rhythm of the work day. There's more waiting around. It's just, you start having to kind of cultivate All these technical skills in a way that you might not need to or have to you're doing a three-week shoot and you're doing 10 scenes a day and you're just rushing through on adrenaline and everything's impulse and instinct um this is very different you know yeah uh you're gonna cover the hell out of things you can't really improvise as much it's it and so it kind of i think opened my eyes to the importance of developing more, more just more technical abilities um
0: concentration yeah. sustained concentration how do you keep yeah, it and even, for-
1: voice, and even voice work not losing your voice and yeah. yeah and stamina and all this kind of stuff
0: so the next time you dip your toe into that world which is inevitable the next 150 million dollar movie you're a part of do you is there a certain kind of project you're looking for in that realm at this point whether it's like a specific filmmaker a franchise that you grew up with is there something that that would be hard to that, that you would chase, that you would be excited for in that realm after having done a couple of these? You
1: know, I, honestly, I mean, maybe it's silly of me, but I don't think of things in that way. Right. Maybe I should think more about, okay, what's my ideal kind of super big movie to try and be in? And no, and do I mean, that don't follow the that Josh
0: Horowitz career plan. You're doing okay on your own.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, but in a way, I guess it's, just, it's more of a, uh, you just kind of respond to yeah. the things that come your way. And sometimes the things that come your way will give you an idea of how you can do something similar to that, but not quite that. And right now I'm trying to just think more about where, where growth is, you know? So for me at that point, it was massively a growing experience working on those bigger movies. And then after having done a few of those, I felt like I'd grow more by doing, going back to those lower budget, yeah. shooting quickly movies like Mogul Mowgli and Sound the Metal. And and I don't know. I, I I guess you don't know exactly where it is until you're presented with a script or an idea, and it scares you enough to for you to know. Okay, I might fail at this, but I'll definitely grow in in doing that. So that's I guess what I'm trying to I'm trying to follow that a bit more.
0: You you just wrapped up a film, I believe, called Invasion. Do you know? Do you have another one on the docket? Do you have some downtime? What's what's the plan going forward?
1: Yeah. So Invasion, I just finished with an amazing director called Michael Pierce, who's. Um, his first film, Beast, is amazing. Uh, would recommend everyone to check it out with Jesse Buckley. And um, it's, uh, it's it, it, it was actually, that was definitely growth. In other words, it was my first time w- working with
0: kids. Yeah, you are a dad um, in that? It,
1: I was my first role as a dad, which was kind of incredible and terrifying and amazing. And kids were just kind of, they'll make you honest, dude. They're <laughs> they were just, you know... Uh, they just cut through all the all the, all the b s and um and force you to kind of ride the wave you know you kind of got to abandon all your plans and all your illusions of control in a way so they 're kind of uh they 're amazing teachers uh working with them so that 's kind of the, the next one and then and the next uh sorry sorry that 's the last one that I filmed but the next one that I think will come out in the states is mogul Mowgli, which is a project that i co-wrote um, with an amazing uh, first-time director called Basam Tariq. And that's a super, super personal right. um, story. You know, we were talking earlier about being willing to bring more of myself to the table. That was in a way an exercise for me to force myself to, to go to the extremes of that and really draw on some of my own experiences and my families and, and people around me uh, in, in telling that story
0: nice well I, I i you know you're 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 one of the best there is right there uh today man and i appreciate always it, it speaks volumes that we're able to talk about movies like you know venom at comic-con and then we can talk about these films like sound of metal you're doing it right in, in both spheres it's all the same in, in a way and um i'm excited to see what's next whether it's the sound of metal prequel or your james bond yeah. movie or whatever whatever the hell it is whatever road you go down i'll be there man um thank you
1: so much man such a pleasure talking to you always bro
0: And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley and I definitely wasn't (laughs) supposed to do this by Josh.